Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? On October 8th, 2013, Brian Penny experienced his first day clean after 15 years of heroin addiction. Instead of perceiving his addiction as a failure, he embraced a second chance at life and went to university to study the source of his suffering. In 2017, he graduated with a degree in psychology, winning several awards, including a fully funded PhD scholarship from Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. Since then, he has become an author, a keynote speaker, university lecturer in both Trinity College Dublin and University College of Dublin, and a life change strategist. That's what it says in the flap of his book. But here's the other thing you should know. Brian is one of the kindest, most helpful, generous, and infectiously enthusiastic people I've ever met. I asked Brian to come on the show because I wanted to have a conversation about the mechanisms that allow some people to not just get by after major trauma and suffering, but to really thrive. With Brian's incredible story as a backdrop, we dive into issues like chronic anxiety, self-awareness, storytelling and self-deception, the connection between language and emotion, the nature of surrender, and the process of transforming desire. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Brian Penny, welcome to Minds and Mics. Thanks for having me, Nick. Delighted to be here. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this uh, this podcast for a while. I've, I've been planning to do it for a long time, and it's been on the books now for, for a couple of weeks. So I'm just really excited. <laughs> I really am. I'm excited as well. We, we've chatted about so many different things, like in the past, or addiction and values. I was dying just to really jump into it. Here's the, here's the chance. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. In your book, um, you describe the story the morning after your first time using heroin, and, and you describe it like this. This should have been one of the most disgusting moments of my life, but it wasn't. With heroin coursing through my body, it was one of my most cherished. As soon as I threw up, a wave of euphoria washed over me, just as powerful as my initial hit. Even as I grew up, even as I threw up, with vomit forcing its way out of my nose, I felt a sense of ease as if I didn't have a care in the world. That night, heroin felt like my guardian angel because I didn't realize, but I didn't realize it was bringing me to hell. As I plunged back into my seat, warm and comfortably numb, heroin whispered in my ears, don't worry, no matter what happens, no matter what pain you're going through, I'll look after you. Everything will be okay. All you have to do is keep me close. Now, this passage really struck me because it seems to me that in a way, this is a kind of a microcosm of your whole relationship with drugs and heroin in particular, from the euphoria and the relief it brings to the horrific side effects to, I mean, to your body, but to your life. But most importantly, in some ways, to the function that heroin served, which was to bring you, largely to bring you peace from worry and anxiety. And if there's one theme that seems to run through all the twists and turns of your addiction, a very strong one seems to be anxiety. So here's kind of my first question, based both on your personal experience, but as, as well as maybe your research, how do you think about the relationship between anxiety and addiction? Right, great, great, great question. The relationship between anxiety and addiction. And for me personally, um, I, I love the way you, you, you caught that thread throughout the book as well. That actually, it really does capture the essence of it. But for me, the relationship um, between anxiety um, and addiction for me was grounded in trauma. 
So I I had a, a traumatic uh, early experience uh, as a baby, and um, uh, what a lot of people mightn't realize is that it was only in 1985 that medical practice realized that they should be given a general anesthetic to infants under operation. So I I, I was born in 1978, and I had a a big operation, and um, me I'd intestinal malrotation, so my guts were twisted, and I had a big operation without a general anesthetic. So they, they gave me a muscle relaxant to stop me squirming. That would have been the practice, and which is crazy. Like when you think about it now, that's crazy. Yeah. But um, basically, from my perspective, for the next year or two after the operation, there was complications, and I was in a lot of pain. And my family, my mom, and my aunties have told me that I cried pretty much for the year and a half after the operation. And I think, from a perspective, a learning perspective, from a behavioral perspective, I'll say, um, let's say, I just viewed the world as a painful place. And in my internal, my internal, I'd say I was feeling certain sensations in my body, with my heartbeat and my blood. And I just feared them as well. I still have a bit of a phobia of heartbeat and pulse. It's probably me, Everest. It's the one demon I still have left because anxiety is not an issue for me anymore. I have a different relationship with anxiety. But that's where it was grounded for me. And that, that, sort of, that, 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 that was where my anxiety started. And I think it, it made me, I was always a very restless and anxious kid all the way through them years. And it stemmed from the trauma i had in my early years um, and then any anything i had a difficult relationship i suppose not a difficult relationship but there was alcoholism around in my family as well my parents had alcohol issues and even though i came from a loving family i was always just worried that something was going to happen to the family and i was always just tense and anxious and i wanted to for want of a better word i always wanted to without knowing i wanted to escape from my own body and it when i finally found drugs that gave me a way to do that yeah, you know, it, it, there's a, another passage um, that really struck me when, you, when you're talking about those early days a, as a child, um, not as an infant, but, but as you were growing up, you, you mentioned that you grew up in a, in a largely very loving family, but there was this passage that stuck out to me, which was, my parents never openly showed us affection. I was jealous of other kids who got hugs from their parents, but at the same time, I knew they loved me deeply. Hugging just wasn't a thing in our family, except for my Aunt Tess, who'd shower us with hugs and kisses. Um, she was incredible. But, I, but so there's this interesting, in addition to kind of being um, wired or set up from the start to, to be sort of feeling that, that anxiety, that there was also this kind of desire for wanting something to alleviate it, right? Like looking for something that would, that would finally alleviate that, that pain. Um, Talk about that a little bit, because I think that's I think that's really important. Yeah, I love that, and I actually have a quote in the book at one stage. I think it's one of the the, the last chapters, which I only found out the importance of that true writing the book. But it's a quote by uh, Johan Harry. It's a uh, sobriety is not the opposite of addiction. Connection is, and I think I was always looking for. I was obviously I, I was very anxious, so I was looking for inner peace, but I wasn't getting that. But I was also looking for. Uh, connection I think as well a deeper connection a deeper feeling as well and I didn't unfortunately I, I was very well fed with my family and I knew my mom and dad loved me but they just weren't they weren't affectionate my mom still isn't affectionate but she shows our love in other ways and I think I was definitely craving that without the knowledge that I was craving it yeah, you know, I, I think it's a it's a realization that as a field, psychology has made recently, and hopefully, it starts trickling down more. That, but that the you know, love is not just an abstract thing, and it, it's it's something that gets expressed in a lot of ways. But we're learning more and more, I think, how important just the physicality of love and affection are 
if for a variety of reasons, but in particular, in, in this case, for giving giving people a sense, especially at a really young age, a sense of security and sort of molding that that initial worldview as there are scary things in the world, but this is basically a safe place. And it seems like in part because of that lack of overt physical affection, part of your worldview was was kind of the opposite. Like this is mostly kind of painful and scary. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was really funny. I'll never forget me first uh, NA meeting. I, I, the 12 steps program is great, but it's, it's um, I think for me, in recovery, there's lots of different angles to go into recovery. But I did do 12 step work for a while, but I'll never forget I went to me first Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And um, the, it was all, they were all hugging each other after the meeting, and I was just so weirded mm. out by that. And I, I remember <laughs> getting a quick realization that I, I was the one that was a bit out, uh, um, a bit off. I, I was the one with the problem of hugging. I wasn't, everyone else was comfortable with that. And it was only through my recovery over the last few years I've realized the importance of hugging people and touch and, and just being, being affectionate with people, like, you know, not, not like just friends and stuff like that. It's crazy. That's something I've had to learn, like in my, in my thirties and early forties. You have a great quote, um, in the, I think in the end of the book somewhere you're talking about, um, actually I think it's when you're, when your aunt, um, you're talking about your aunt and she has this line, which is, I'm, probably going to butcher it but it's something like you can hug a sofa but the sofa doesn't hug you back <laughs> yeah so what what she says is you can't cuddle a sofa yeah but then right? i think i think i i describe it in the words you use and that was when the aunt tess and um, she was that's when she was um passing away she's passed away now actually and um, she passed away in november but um it was when she was she was dying of cancer at the time and we had a great chat about life and stuff like that and that was her way of saying people are the most the people in your life they want the ones you love are the most important people in your life because a sofa like you can buy all the materialistic stuff you want in your life but like a sofa it won't hug you back only people can do that she was she was amazing <laughs> yeah it sounds like it well, well and it, it's hard not to hear that though and and read your and hear your story and not think that's that's what you were doing and i don't i don't want to put words in your mouth but it seems to me like that's the perfect metaphor for the entire struggle with addiction is hugging a sofa, right? Looking for something that superficially feels, you know, comfortable, but but ultimately realizing it doesn't actually hug you back. Yeah, that that's a great catch, Nick. Actually, and I even call it my soft warm blanket. I, I refer to right. heroin in the book as a soft warm blanket on so many occasions. And um, and whether it was drugs, whether it was any outside, like going going drinking with friends, like I was still a drinker as well. I would look always looking for outside ways to 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 hit to to, to fill that void, fill that spiritual and and connection that I, that I was missing in my life, that spiritual hole and that connection that I was missing in my life. I was always trying to replace it with outside stuff, and unfortunately, mostly it was drugs. Now, how were you aware of that? during the time when you were struggling with addiction or did that awareness that you were using drugs as a way to in large part alleviate loneliness and anxiety did you only become aware of that afterwards or did, did you have inklings of that during the process i had no inclination of that whatsoever so so it's funny so johan harry that quote i said he says connection is the opposite of addiction i'd actually i'd actually go one step further on that and i'd say awareness is the opposite of addiction um, when, when I was in the treatment center, um, they were very 12-step orientated. And I, I learned a lot from that stuff as well. But there was a priest in the addiction center, the treatment center I went into. And he used to call it an awareness center. And he was very much, he actually worked with Anthony DeMello at one stage. Um, uh, DeMello was my favorite book, which is called Awareness. Like, it's just like the Bible. 
and he talked about a lot of the parables that Anthony DeMello would talk about and the, those kinds of teachings. And it was just, there's a great quote by, by um, I think it's Cheryl Sandberg, and it says, you cannot change, I, I'm going to butcher this quote as well, but it's only by becoming aware that you'll change. But once you become aware, you cannot help but change. And like, I was destroying myself for so many years, completely unaware, deceiving myself at every step. And it was like when I got clean, I was like, I was nearly saying, why didn't anyone tell me about this? Not that I would have listened, but I was so unaware of what I was doing. And especially that anxiety was was feeding everything. Like it was just a, a way of putting it more to answer your question would be that I was anxiety. Like I used to say my anxiety was the worst anxiety ever. And it, and it, it was literally who I was as a human being. It, it was my sense of self. I am anxiety. That's all I am. And I need to get heroin to alleviate this pain that's inside of me. So I just associate myself as being a part of this anxiety. So to be aware of it, I couldn't be aware of it because it was who I, who, it was who I thought I was. Yeah, I think that's such an underappreciated part of addiction, which is that, I mean, I think a lot of people in broad strokes know that often addiction is about, it, it's more of a symptom trying to, you know, alleviate some other sort of need. But but I don't think, I don't think people really appreciate the degree to which that is going on, including, and, and part of the issue, it seems to me, is that when you're in it, that lack of self-awareness, you don't even know that that process is going on, that you're, you're aware of the normal stuff in life, but it, it's such a different thing to be aware of kind of psychological dynamics inside ourselves, right? And this, I, I, this transitions, I think, to a, the, the ne- another really strong theme, and you, you kind of mentioned the idea of self-deception, um, but I, I think of it as stories is a really strong theme that runs throughout your memoir. Um, and and there, there, there's a passage that, that really exemplifies this for me. And it, it, I'll quote you here. It says, I was 31 when I finally admitted I was an addict. I didn't want to believe I was a normal addict. So I did what I do best. I told myself a story and I decided I was the best addict ever. I, I always have money and I always get my drugs. I tell myself proudly. I used to laugh about it with my family and friends, the ones who still tolerated me, but I didn't find it funny. It was a mask. In reality, I was dying inside. That's why I needed a new story. If I was going to survive, if I was going to be able to live with myself, I had to believe in something positive, something to boost me. And this was the best I had. So one way to kind of interpret your larger story is that the stories you told yourself, like it was just... In, like superficially, your story is moving on from one severity of addiction to another. But the another like underlying level is your storytelling keeps kind of ramping up and up and up. So can you talk a little bit about that, about, about the importance of storytelling um, when it comes to your experience? Yeah, definitely. It's such a huge part of, of my story and, and of my life and, and what I talk about now, the tools I talk about now for other people. Um, I think the 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 key there's a key part in the book that I think is probably the essence of the book to be quite honest, and I actually say I was a black belt in self deception, and I could I, by telling myself I could tell myself um, I could take any action or cross any boundary by telling myself another lie and believing it, and that that was the key part. It reminds me of a, in, in psychology they call it cognitive dissonance. So if I I felt a little bit difficult about a certain situation, bad feelings, I tweak my story. So I would feel okay. And and that's literally literally what I done throughout my whole addiction. Like I I was uncomfortable about um injecting injecting heroin. So I, I, I wouldn't be that kind of an addict. But then by the time I got there, 
I changed my story to make that okay. And it was like the the, the main the main thing, like the main self delusion within my whole addiction was I'm not a real addict because I could not. And I'm nothing against real addicts. I was a real addict. It was just just a self deception. But I I couldn't see myself as a real addict. The stereotypical story that we tell ourselves that addicts are so I, I sort of pigeonholed the typical addict into a box and I wasn't gonna go there I was a different kind of addict and as long as I kept that story alive that I wasn't that kind of an addict I was a different kind of an addict who went on holidays who drove a decent car I was okay I it, it, I, I was in control and, and the funny the funny thing is as well like I was a, a registered heroin addict for 12 of them years I was going to a chemist every day to drink methadone I was going to a clinic to give urines, but I only believed the part of the story or acknowledged the parts of the story that I wanted to believe. And I genuinely believed that I wasn't a real addict, even though I was sitting in a clinic giving urine with all of these other addicts who I thought were real addicts. And it was just so bizarre that as long as I kept that story alive and believed it, I, I could, I could, I could, I could, I could function. Um, totally unbeknownst to myself of who I really was. That was the grand self-deception of it all. Yeah. It's well, and it, it's interesting though, because story, I mean, our, as human beings, our capacity for storytelling is normally we think of it as such a wonderful thing. And I think it is to a large extent. Right. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, just personally, I'll say part of what makes you one of my favorite people is you're, you're <laughs> such a, you're such a compelling per, you're, you're such a good storyteller, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're, you're just compelling when you talk. Um, and we all love a good story and we love a good narrative. Right. But what, one of the things I think that, again, kind of an underappreciated part of addiction that, that your book really highlights is how dangerous storytelling can be, especially with ourselves, right? The, the self-deceptive wow, quality yeah. of storytelling. Yeah. But but it's interesting to me too, and, and maybe you could kind of um, tell us, speaking of storytelling, you could tell us the story. After you, even after you, um, you get into treatment and you start the recovery process, that, that habit of storytelling didn't just all of a sudden go away. There, there's a moment, and, and I'll let you tell it, but when, when your family comes to visit you, when you're, when you're in, I don't, know if, I don't remember if it was detox or recovery, but and, and the incident with the, the cell phone and your sister. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Could you, could you talk about that? Tell that story a little bit. Yeah. I, I thought you were referring to the story where I thought it was a sage at one stage in, in detox. Oh, no, wait. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, want, I want to talk about that later. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> don't okay. jump the gun on that one. That's why I was giggling. <laughs> this, this one there wasn't a giggling story. But this this was this was a groundbreaking moment for me, Nick. It really was. This was this was probably the, one of the biggest moments of not of rec- not of me recovery of, of staying clean, but of realizing my my self deceptive nature. And what had happened where I was in, so I'd been in detox. Now I was in a treatment center, and it was family days in the treatment center. So they'd come down every Wednesday, and the family would come down, and they'd, they'd give out, they'd tell the the counselors and the other clients about how much of a problem I was, getting me to realize. The, the how, how problematic my addiction was to see the reality of the situation so what was happening with other clients was on the last week their family had come down and praised them you've done brilliant you've done great and i was expecting to get this pat on the back from my whole family on the last day but they seen i was still sort of being deceiving myself and i was having fun i wasn't engaging in it the way i should have been now there's another side of that as well that i did have a shift in perspective and i felt very energetic and, and full of life so i did have a complete shift that gave me something different than other people. So I wasn't feeling that deep pain. 
But um, when my family came down on the last day, I had told my brother to bring my phone down because I'm allowed to have it for the last few days. I was like a little child. I literally just wanted to, to play videos for people and, and listen to music. Like it was totally illegal to have it in the treatment center. So my brother knew I shouldn't have had the phone. So he just said it to my sister who was like, so even though she's the youngest of us all, uh, the siblings, she was like the one that looked after the, that put me in my place, I suppose. So she gave my phone to the counselor and says, Brian, the idiot said he can have this phone. He obviously can't. I let you handle it. So the counselor, Dave, his name was, called me into the room after this happened. And he actually, he just turned around. He says, Brian, I believe um, you told your sister, or you told your brother that you could have your phone. He gave it to your sister. She gave it to me. And without a B, like I didn't miss a B. And I just went, wow, Dev, I can't believe that that's what she said. Do, do you know what's had to happen in here, Dev? She knew this was her last opportunity to dig the knife in. So she makes up this lie about me phone and just says, what would I want me phone for? That's ridiculous. And I remember sitting there sort of proud that I, I came up with this lie off the cuff. And Dave would have seen, he was a counsellor, he was in addiction, he would have seen it all. So he didn't believe me, but I didn't know that at the time. And I walked out of that room kind of smiling to myself. That was good. But at the same time, walking down the corridor, I, I said to myself, I can't believe Anne done that to me. I can't believe she, she actually done that to me. And in the, in the instant, it was the, one of the first times I just caught myself really quickly. And I says, wow, you literally made up a lie and within a few seconds believed it and start blaming another person. I just, all within a few seconds, I made up a lie and believed it to make me feel okay. And it was like an absolutely groundbreaking moment for me in 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 treatment. Yeah, it's it's almost as if you you had went you'd been going through detox before that. But yeah, it's almost like that moment was the start of recovery because, as you say, in some ways it's not even connection necessarily, but self awareness is is the opposite of addiction, right? Yeah, and that was like one of the cracks in that big edifice of kind of lies and self-deception, right? Where you, you were able to catch yourself afterwards. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah. And it also, it sets up kind of an interesting um, tension between self-awareness and storytelling. You know, it's, it's one thing to be kind of um, spinning a yarn right, for, for better or worse, but it's a very different thing to just be observing and just kind of noticing what you can be in your mind, but then you can also be observant of your own mind and yourself and your body. Um, I, I found that kind of an interesting tension yeah. kind of weaved throughout, throughout the book. Yeah, and there's a, there's a funny thing as well, I, I, and I don't know how I'm gonna parse this out, but I would love to write a book at some stage, long, a few years down the future when I get more, when I process this a little bit better. But I think there's a huge uh, link between self-deception self-belief and self-awareness i think i think there's a thread that binds them all together because i had tremendous self-belief in me ability to be a great addict like i genuinely believe that it was self-belief but it was self-delusional because i was absolutely killing myself and i had no self-awareness but when i got clean i became self-aware I was still a little bit deluded, but that self-belief was still there. And I sort of carried me through in recovery because I had this belief that I could go be an academic, I could get a scholarship or a PhD. So there's this really strange relationship between these three things. And it's 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 really interesting. It's, it's something yeah, for the so future. I, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because um, it's another kind of um, less prominent but still strong theme throughout your story is is self-belief, this this kind of inner strength and kind of confidence, which obviously in some 
in some capacity, you, you sort of turned to not great ends, but but it was really advantageous in your recovery, I think. So, but given given like the the traumas in so many of the ch- the challenges in your childhood, how do you how do you make sense of that self belief? Like where 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 does where did that come from? Do you think? I don't know. This is this is an interesting one, Nick, because um, my mum wouldn't have much self-belief. We, we've chatted a lot about this uh, topic. And my dad wouldn't really, it doesn't really run on the family's self-belief. It's like I, I, I just had this weird self-belief from an early age. I was a very... Um, I was a very, I was a very self-obsessed kid as well. Like it was like there was this, there's this funny story we tell in the family. Like when all the kids were playing football, there was a ball for Brian and a ball for everyone else. So it was like I'd run around playing football with a football in my hand. Like it was this self-obsession kind of thing. It was me, 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 me. And um, I, I don't know where I'm bringing that with self-belief, but that, that was sort of an important aspect of that as well. But I, I, that, I was different from the rest of my family members from that perspective as well. But then I always had this incredible self-belief. I always thought I always wanted to be the best and I always thought I would be the best. But it's like this self-delusional thing as well. Like if we were playing tiddlywinks and I never played tiddlywinks, I would still think I'd be the best, even though I've never even practiced it before. So it, it was it's this link between self-delusion again. Now, w- one thing about that would be I came from a very disadvantaged area. Like there wasn't much money in the area and the education levels in the school weren't very high. So I was, I'm pretty academic. I'm good. I'd be, I'd be, I wouldn't have a, high, a mad high IQ or anything like that, but I, cop on to things pretty quickly so I was good in school I was very good in football a uh, football as well soccer and um in the area I came from it was sort of a little bit easier to excel rather than if, if you went to a, a, a more privileged area I suppose so I'd say self-belief came from that as well and then I suppose there's, there's the compounding um effect of that as well when, when you do well in school and when you do well at football you just build up more self-belief but true the, the the link then back to addiction then as well i i carried that through into me addiction and it became just it became very very maladaptive where it was where it's been a huge advantage in recovery and it was a huge advantage in the early life and childhood it carried through in the addiction and, and and mixed with self-delusion and i just sort of lost myself in that you know it strikes me too that i, I think i think that's a really insightful way of looking at that that kind of tough question of where does self-belief come from though <laughs> definitely makes sense to me a- another one though that that also fits that pattern of being um kind of simultaneously advantageous and disadvantageous is at least when it comes to addiction is your you seem to have a pretty strong kind of talent or capacity for friendship and i, I know this personally <laughs> um but it's 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 a streak that runs through your book too is that you you seem to have um, always had friends, always had pretty good friends, even kind of in the midst of the depths of the addiction, right? You still had, um, you, you still, I mean, even after, you know, once you recovered, you still have a lot of the relationships that you had back then. And, and even when in times of, you know, real isolation and loneliness, it still seems like that, that capacity for friendship and the connections you were able to make and hang on to, to some extent, I, I, I got to imagine that maybe plays some role in self-belief too. You know, when you're surrounded by people who you really enjoy you and who really care about you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, 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 I've great self-belief around making friends as well. And it's really interesting that something that jumped out at me there as well was I would have had a lot of friendships, but none of them went very deep in addiction. 
since I've gotten clean, those I've rebuilt them relationships, but I haven't just rebuilt them. Like they've gotten so much stronger because now I'm feeling things. I'm I'm really going deep on things. I'm really connecting with people. I'm being vulnerable and putting myself out there. Me ego's off the table in a lot of them relationships now as well. But um, yeah, definitely around self-belief. I always had a natural self-belief. I used to call it that. And it's back to telling ourselves a story. I, one of the stories I tell myself now is I'm like a chameleon. I can jump into different environments mm. and chat to people about different topics. I was always like that. Even when I was in the addiction center in the clinic, I used to go in and talk to the doctor about prescribing me the methadone about the skin holidays I had planned, asking him about skin holidays. Like, so I jump onto his way of length as in, away from the client I, I i'd be like as pal you know that way and it's always I'm, i was always able to pivot like that and i think i remember there's one part of the book that's at the, um, at the jumping out at me now it was i remember I was playing golf with um the founder of the company that i was in at the time and um i, I pretty i was pretty handy at golf as well and we were going around the golf course and i i don't specifically remember thinking this or telling myself this story but reflecting back now saying i bet you i was saying to myself i bet you real heroin addicts don't do this and it would have been the ability to to just chat to people and it definitely and, and I suppose when you're thinking about self-belief, your relationships, like your relationships are everything. So my self-belief around being comfortable with striking up a relationship or striking up a friendship with someone and chatting to somebody, that gave me a huge advantage in many other areas. That's that, that's a great point, actually. It's very interesting. So an, another um kind of important theme that like pops up to me when thinking about your story in, in, in the book is what I'm going to call the, the concept of surrender. And I think this is related to, I'm going to have you, you tell a specific story that in some ways is also like kind of a turning point of, of your whole story. But the, tell us about the, um, the fire extinguisher story <laughs> right yeah so so red, for me, the red fire the red fire extinguisher so for me this was this was the the force that this was the biggest moment even though it wasn't the huge shift in perspective this was the biggest moment that had to happen for me because i think before this when i when i say i was tormented by my mind i was arguing with reality i was fighting with my own mind trying to live out my story and that that heroin was going to save me from anxiety when i wasn't working anymore so what what had actually happened um i finally lost my job i lost i lost everything i lost every relationship in my life i lost my mind i lost my health everything was gone and i i was forced to seek professional help it was that or else die and I was um, going to do, I, I said, I'll, I'll go and do a detox. And I, I wasn't willing to give up drugs at this time. I was just willing to get clean to, to re-evaluate re my life. And I, I wasn't even thinking about it in them terms. I was just started trying to survive. But I says, right, I need to get clean. I had no other choice. So I had to do a detox at home um, because I was too much, I was too high risk for a, for a detox center one within the couple of weeks anyway because um i had too many benzodiazepine in, in my system so they told me i'd be at risk of having a seizure so the special addict in me taught as if i'll have a seizure it says i'm going to do a detox at home on my own i'm just going to come off all of the drugs except opiates um and i'm just going to come off to myself and then i'll go into the treatment center so I done my home detox and I start the book with this story actually. So I woke up two days into my home detox. I woke up lying on my floor, me sitting around the floor and my face was pasted to the ground by me warm, sticky blood, as I put it in the book. And what had happened to me was I had a seizure. I wasn't special. I had a grand mal seizure. And and um, basically when when you have a seizure, every all your muscles convulse, every every neuron in your brain 
basically fires at the same time. So while my muscles were convulsing, and I'd actually driven me teeth, I drove me teeth through my tongue, so I split the center of my tongue. So um, my brother was in the room when that happened. He thought I was dead because he slumped after a seizure. He thought I was dead, blood coming out of my mouth. He rang my family to say, I think Brian's dead. So they all rushed to the house, got an ambulance. Fortunately, I wasn't dead, and I was rushed to the hospital. So I don't remember much of what happened there, but a few little um, light memories, sort of fleeting memories floating in. But what I do remember is waking up in the hospital later that that night and I was lying on my own in the room on a hospital trolley. And I um, I remember I was just so broken, emotionally, mentally and physically broken. I had nothing left. And I tried to pull myself up onto the up into a seated position up off the trolley. And um, I remember I, st- I still had a horrible feeling in my body. Like I was also going through withdrawals, benzo withdrawals at the time. So I was full of anxiety as well at the time, bodily anxiety, just wanted to escape out of my skin. And I was trying to pull myself up off the trolley. And I remember my eyes just landed on this fire extinguisher, a red fire extinguisher in the room. It was like I was pulled into the moment. And I remember looking at it, just sort of in a trance, looking at this fire extinguisher. And I was trying to put the words together. I was saying, that's a fire extinguisher. And it's the color red, but I couldn't, I couldn't put the, the, the words together, the concept together. That's a red fire extinguisher. And I start looking around the room at other items in the room, like the brown floor or the, 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 whatever the color of the wall was. I was looking at different items in the room and I was like words and concepts didn't make sense anymore. The way I like to describe it is it's like links of a chain that I knew they went together, but they, 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 I couldn't put them together anymore. And they just didn't make sense. And I remember just saying to myself, oh man. That you've done it now that your brain damaged your brain's not working anymore game over and i was such i've always been an anxious person and i remember waiting for this fear and anxiety to come over me the fact that i'm actually brain damaged and i just i don't know whether it was verbal or what went on but i just remember saying to myself ah oh, i give up nah no nah, I, 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 I give up i'm not fighting this anymore and I, I just accepted reality like like you say it was like for the first time in my life i surrendered to what was actually happening in the moment i stopped trying to fight it i stopped trying to keep me addiction alive and i just stopped fighting I, I waved 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 the white flag and i just surrendered and i personally believe that that was the possibly the most defining moment in my life the crack in the ego the crack in my story in the shell of my ego that allowed me to change my life Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a powerful story. Um, and and I, I think later in the book, you, I've got this quote in front of me that says you're describing that moment and you say, when my mind went quiet, anxiety left me and I wanted to know why. I think, I think you're talking about like wanting to go back to school to kind of study addiction and neuroscience. And so tell us about that. How looking back with all your, you know, kind of experiences since then, how do you make sense of that? Like why was yeah, in a moment, in a way, it was it was surrender. It was giving up, but but yeah. also it was it was the beginning of a totally different new way of of just being with your own mind and your own self. So, ha- tell us more about how how you think about that moment now. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so so what happened after that event? I I was still in a lot of physical pain, withdrawals, and I went back to my house. I had I had to spend another month at home waiting for benzos to come out of my system. So I could be clean of the drugs to get into the detox facility. So I had another seizure. I was back in hospital. And that was probably the most difficult month of my life. It was was a very painful month, very, very difficult month. I just couldn't move. My body was broken. I was in a a very bad way. 
But then when I got to the detox or to the detox center, yeah, and I start coming off heroin and opiates, um, there was a five week detox coming off that as well. But then on my fourth day clean, a couple of days before that, I started having these weird experiences. Like I was just sort of coming alive, this feeling of coming alive. So even though I was going through physical detox, I just had, felt these weird bursts of energy in my body. It was really strange. And like I, I was, I started to read like Eastern philosophy. I was reading a, a book about mindfulness and meditation. And I was like, I was just like mesmerized by this new way of thinking that I'd never heard about before. And we'd also start practicing mindfulness meditation for the first time in the detox facility as well. And I remember um, my first day clean was the 8th of October, 2013. And that's when I started to realize I had a huge shift in perspective. And I didn't know about the language thing and the anxiety at that stage. But I just remember on that day, that, that particular day, I went out in the morning time. out into the, you know, We were on a farm. The detox was on a farm. And I remember just walking around the farm and just the world was just so alive. Like it was a dew soaked morning. I'll never forget it in October. It was like the dew drops were like diamonds. It was like things that were once hollow were just so full of life. And it was just the world was just glowing and alive with energy. I didn't know what was happening to me. I just knew I was having this amazing experience. And to be honest, I didn't put much thought into it. I just sort of went with it. But it was um, a couple of weeks after that, and, and especially the years after that as well, is the reason why I went and studied psychology. When we were doing a mindfulness meditation, I think it was in detox or else treatment, um, I think the, the meditation teacher was like, allow the thoughts to come into your mind. And it just dawned on me. I was waiting for these thoughts to come into my mind. And then it just dawned on me, wow, my, boy, my mind is very, very quiet. What's the story with that? And little did I know back then, that was another voice coming in and actually talking about that stuff as well. So that's another voice coming in. But compared to my old self, my mind was just very, very quiet. And anxiety had left me at that stage. So I come to the realization, wow, my mind went really, really quiet. So when I stopped thinking about all of these different things and tried to keep this internal narrative alive and fighting against reality with my own mind, anxiety left me. That was the conclusion I came up with. So without having the, the psychological knowledge that I have now, um, I, I, wa I wanted to go and do a degree in psychology. And what I've come up against now, and it's part of my PhD as well, is I've I've begun exploring. I, I went in and I asked the, the the professors in there, and there was one woman in particular, uh, Professor Yvonne Barnes-Holmes. I was asking her, what's the relationship between thinking and emotions? And thankfully, she is a world expert in the field of relational frame theory. Now, I'm not going to go into the science of this now, but relational frame theory literally explores the relationship between language, including self-talk, and emotions and it shows how emotions literally travel through language and travel through the stories that we tell ourselves it's literally a vehicle for emotion so for me i just jumped on that i was like wow this is what i need to oh this is what i need to study is because if 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 our emotions are traveling through language and i stop that internal narrative maybe that's a solution to why i feel so at peace now and then is that where meditation comes in if you're trying to quiet your mind you're reducing the, the amount of thoughts and the, the strength of those emotions if they have sticky content in them as well. Now, what I've come to realize since then is that it's not about quieting your mind or, or getting rid of your anxiety. It's about changing your relationship with anxiety. So I still get anxious if I'm doing public speaking or I'm doing something new or jumping into the unknown. But my relationship with it has changed that I know it's going to come and the narrative might be there. But the narrative be very different because the narrative for me will be, Oh, don't know. I need heroin to, to get away from this anxiety because I can't cope. The narrative for me now is I'll watch anxiety come, 
and I'll see anxiety go. So it's 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 the anxiety just has less strength in that because of the language has changed there as well. Can you tell the the story, retell the story about that first really big talk you gave and when you you sort of felt a panic attack coming on, but then oh. you, you sort of approached it differently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the one for, um, she's a really good friend of mine, Michelle. She was my supervisor in uh, from my undergrad and we've become really great friends now. So she invited me for my first big public talk. So I got into public speaking and I done it in a, I done one in a school and uh, the self-belief came in. I, I started to talk myself. I'm a great public speaker from two talks <laughs> and skills, uh, which is a bit crazy. <laughs> and I was going in thinking I'll do a great job doing it, doing this talk in the National College of Ireland. And we walked into the room and it was this big amputator. And I says, wow, I've never done anything like this before. And I remember she invited loads of the psychology lecturers to the talk. And obviously, I, I remember, actually, I remember um, what, what was in my head at the time, because um, I was going to be talking about mindfulness and how to cope with anxiety. And I remember just getting in another little story in my head. Oh, my God, Mr. Mindfulness is going to have a panic attack on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I could feel this anxiety building up in my body, like, when I get anxious now, it's very, it's normal, like it's evolutionary anxiety, but the anxiety that we're supposed to have, like you should be yeah, like putting me on red alert. So it's not this anxiety that I'm afraid of. But when I was doing that talk, I could feel this overwhelming sense of anxiety again, that that like that panic attack kind of anxiety. And I remember me, me hands were getting sweaty and the, the talk was about to start. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have a panic attack here. And I have put in a lot of practice since then, a lot of meditative practice since then. And a really, a, a, a very core practice of mine in terms of meditation will be self-observation. So I, I literally observe my thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations. So I could spend 10 minutes literally just observing myself. And I think it's a key part of self-awareness as well to become more self-aware, but just literally observing myself. And even when I'm not practicing mindfulness, I'm always inwardly looking at myself, watching me feelings, watching me reactions, inwardly observing how I'm reacting to a situation. And through that practice, I believe what happened there, I was about to have the panic attack and it was like I went into observer mode. It was like I, I nearly, I think in the book I describe it as standing up behind me or above myself. But it sort of felt like I just took a step back. It was like a voice took a step back and says, okay, this is what's happening. This is what you have to do. Everything will be okay. You just have to name it and run with it. So what I actually done was my mouth went really, really dry. And I'd actually asked Michelle, because I'd left water, and I'd left me water in her office. I says, Michelle, can you grab me some water? And I literally just told the whole room, and I says, I was about to have a panic attack there. And I think it's really important that I am going to describe the experience that I just had, because I'm going to be talking about mindfulness. But what actually happened was I went into observer mode, and I was able to catch me anxiety in full flight by the practices that I'm going to be talking about. And by doing that, I was able to stop myself having a panic attack because I became the observer of it and I was able to gain control of myself again. And um, I actually didn't think that was one of my better talks. I was only learning to be a speaker then as well. But one of the, it turned out to be possibly one of my most powerful talks because I was completely vulnerable in the moment of something that happened in vivo, in, in action right there. And it just, it, it was a lot of people, the students of Michelle that went back to her after that and told them it was actually a, a life-changing moment for them that they realized it was something I said actually as well, that what what is, is, it already is the case. So if you don't accept what is, you're not accepting reality. 
that what you'll be that what you're trying to fight with a projected future or a past that's already happened, something that you cannot change. So you've got to accept the isness of the moment because it, it's it already is the case. And I remember saying that saying that, and and a couple of students came back, and that's what they blew them away. Says, "Wow, did you ever get an idea of what acceptance actually is as well?" And that was just a that was just a it was one of the the best talks, and it's, it's really a weapon that I use that I don't get. It's it's funny I don't get anxious anymore doing public speaking, and I'm I'm sort of disappointed with that because I always wanted to use that <laughs> tool again in the future, but I'll have to use it for if I go on TV or something like that <laughs> if that ever happens. That's <laughs> such a. I mean, the, the irony here is it's, it makes for such a good story, but was, what was so powerful, it seems like, about that event was you, you, finally, you were able to shift out of storytelling mode and just be aware, which is a totally different gear of operating and yeah. such a powerful antidote to the, the downsides that can go along with storytelling. Yeah. And do you know what the funny thing is here, Nick? I'd love to get your opinion on this, actually. So even though I went into observer mode, there was still a voice to me, perceptually, there was still a voice saying, ask Michelle to get the drink of water. So yeah, so I suppose it wasn't a story. It was just a voice, another, another, but it was like another narrator, a separate narrator. As you talk about a different mode of thinking, a different mode of being, nearly. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like, too, to me that it was very... Um... Well, two things, very uh, present focused. It, it wasn't about what's going to happen if I pass out because of my panic attack or what are these people going to think of me? It wasn't hypothetical or future oriented. It yeah. was about right now, I would like some water. <laughs> yeah. And it was, very, it was very reality based, right? It was yeah. just like, my mouth is dry. I would like some water, right? It, it wasn't this, yeah. this kind of big epic story. It was very kind of ordinary, present, specific, right? Yeah, I, I don't know that to me, that yeah. seems like a big, a big part of it, right? Keeping Definitely. yourself in the, in the present. Um, in the present, yeah. Yeah. So this really, in some ways, this, um, you know, self-awareness starting with the red fire hydrant uh, or if, not fire, fire extinguisher, <laughs> the red fire <laughs> <Yeah>. extinguisher, <laughs> um, <laughs> starting with that, but then building to this learning how through, through meditation, through mindfulness, through a variety of experiences, learning how to, to harness that and, and train yourself to, instead of telling stories and always kind of fighting with your anxiety, to just look at it and sort of name it and, and get on with your life with it instead of having to get rid of it. That seems like a really, that was kind of the, the inflection point of the whole story. Um, and and what, I, what I want to kind of turn to now is the the last kind of theme in my mind that that and to some extent maybe maybe the most important one that, that runs through your story and I want to get your thoughts but I want to I want to tee this one up again with another with a story from from back kind of in the middle of your addiction I think and and it was you had just started selling cocaine um, and here's what you say my cheery new venture seemed to be working I never had huge sums of money but it provided me with great cash flow. I was easily able to feed my heroin habit, and I stuffed my face to my heart's content. My tolerance levels went through the roof, of course, but I didn't care. I don't care was fast becoming a problem in every aspect of my life. I didn't care about anything anymore. Not my family, not my friends, not my job, not my health, nothing. It wasn't a conscious decision. I wanted to care, but my pain consumed me. More accurately, my pursuit of a way to soothe this pain consumed me. From here on in, I directed every thought and every action toward that goal. So this, 
now you're going to say, well, like, what does this have to do with values, right? Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. The, the, the lack of. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Th- yeah. This just shows how one of the the really, you know, tragic side effects, it sounds like, uh, of addiction is you slowly sort of give up all the, the sort of good things and values and things you want to preserve and, and move toward because all of your energy is being directed toward alleviating that pain, right? So, so it seems like a strong theme in, in sort of your addiction was a loss of values. And at the same time, one way to look at your recovery, if you, if you want to kind of zoom out was it was, you learn to thrive after, after addiction, because you just, you sort of rediscovered how to add value back in your life. And, And I'm not talking about sort of cultural or religious values necessarily. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking more kind of personal values, but but that sort of parallel there, that can't be a coincidence, right? So uh, my question, I guess, is how do you, does that, does that resonate with you? And, and how do you, how do you think about the concept of, of values, personal values, especially when it comes to addiction, but also kind of recovering from and thriving after addiction? Yeah, this, this resonates so much with me, Nick. And it, it's really funny. I, I, I would say, it mightn't even be the, the absence of values in addiction. There's just one big, huge value, and that's drugs. <laughs> that's the only yeah. thing you value. It's really, that, that's, that's the way it would have been. It's the only thing that was of value to me. And maybe a bit of conniving or, or scheming to get your drugs. They, that they're the things you value. But, um, yeah, it's it's crazy. And even as you're speaking there, I'm at the thinking of something. There's even been a, like a... Um, a spectrum of values for me as well and it's something i i really value you have to give me one of my core values that i sort of forgot about for a while but it was the the first value that helped me on my way and helped me into recovery was curiosity i mm. massively value curiosity and once i found what well, we've chatted about this before like transforming desires or are switching from one addiction to the other but if it's a positive addiction we we might just call it drive you could still call it addiction but it, but it's okay if it's if it's a positive thing until you can find balance and i became when i got clean i became or when i when i got clean and had a shift in perspective and i found out about mindfulness meditation and eastern philosophy i became intensely curious obsessed to an extent about these kinds of concepts and that's where I, I began finding different values as well. I, and it was really on a spectrum, on a timeline, really. So as time has gone by, I found many more values. So I, I would have many values that I hold dear, like calmness or inner peace, I call it, or stillness even, is a core value. And I always valued that, even in addiction. I just didn't realize that I was chased. Like, you could say I valued heroin, but really I valued stillness. I was just using heroin as a as a, as a a vehicle to get the stillness i just had no awareness that that's what i was actually looking for so that would be a core value of mine is this inner peace i found it in recovery and i wanted to keep it to an extent as well but other other values like I, i've really developed a lot of value since then there's a great story in the book actually as well and a core value of mine will be honesty and i'm talking about self-honesty the absence of self-deception i suppose and I remember when I was in treatment, the, the guys in treatment kept saying, Brian, you're going to have to start telling the truth. You're going to have to start telling the truth. And because I kept on lying all the time. But when I had that incident with my sister and I realized I was deceiving myself, I left that treatment center a week later and they were telling me, Brian, like, yeah, yeah, it's important to be honest, but you can't be brutally honest. So it was like I went from one extreme to the other. And I says, I have got to be honest with everything. I valued honesty so much 
from from that moment. But um, from from that, it would have been a couple of years, maybe two or three years, until I start getting into the personal growth stuff and writing about writing about this stuff and really really delving deep onto tools and tactics for life and emotional intelligence. And it was when I when I met yourself, Nick, as well, that I really start digging deep into values. And I would have a core set of values that just I align my life by. And in terms of what we're talking about today, like patience for like in context here, it's around the coronavirus time. So patience is a core value of mine that I'm really putting a lot of emphasis on right now. Compassion, connection are two big values that I put a lot of value on right now in the current climate. But um. I've so I've so many values that just guide my life. They guide every decision that I make in my life. All of my decisions, like there's goals, come into that as well. But values are how I align my decisions and how I make my decisions. And it's really a, a way of thinking about that and of of right now in the context that we're in right now. So part of my story as well is really boldly reaching out to people and taking risks and taking chances and daring greatly, as 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 you might say. And that has gotten me a lot of uh, traction in my life. A lot of good stuff has come into my life. I reached out to leading CEOs and um, they've become mentors of mine. And that's what started off a, a successful speaking career for me. So I, I value boldness and industry. And these kinds, of, these kinds of values are very important for me. But um, in the last few weeks with the coronavirus and stuff like that, I've had to pivot on these values because they're not serving me as well there. So I've nearly had to take a step back and and and, and realign my values for the next few weeks. So as I said, patience is, is really important to me right now. Connection, duty, they are really, really important values to me right now. And when we go back to other times, I can shift them values again. But having values is the basis of all the decisions I make. And they were like, they were totally absent while I was in addiction. It was like, I had I, a talk about um, my values in terms of, um, there's, a, there's a quote that I love and I, I, I live my life by, does it make the boat go faster? So if I have a decision to make, I will say, if it makes the boat go faster, I'll say yes. If it doesn't make the boat go faster, I'll say no. no I, I robbed this, um, this lion from the Great Britain round team. And they used it for, for the, when they were training for the Olympics. And I, I, I'd say, will it make my values both go faster? That's how I sort of use that. So am I aligned with my values by making that decision? So balance, there, there's a great example. Balance is one of my core values. I don't, it's, it's something I want to aspire to because I don't have much balance in my life because I'm all really proud of the book and working a lot right now. But I need to put more time into my relationships. So of late, I've been saying, right, I haven't been putting enough time into my relationships. And, and this has been a big realization when we're in lockdown and stuff like that as well. So I'm putting more time into my relationships. And I think the balance thing is key in terms of to make sure I'm putting putting enough time into my relationships, into my career, into socializing, into having fun and, and, and sort of putting putting a fire under all of the different aspects of my life to keep them all born. And you might say, and, and, and. I don't want to go off topic here and talk about principles as well, but principles start to come in that as well, Act the actions that you're going to take. So if I notice myself that I'm not aligning with a certain value, I will put actions into place and make decisions to make sure I'm aligning the actions towards what I value most deeply. Because at the end of the day, our values are what's most important to us. So you need to reflect on these values. So you're making your decisions and you're, you're taking your actions based on what's important to you. And I think that's the key piece of where values come in. 
Yeah, man, and you can you can kind of hear the voice, the passion in your voice when you're talking about this stuff. Um, <laughs> but I, I want to bring it back to that that phrase you used initially, which was the concept of transforming desire. Because I, I, I think you know one of the things that personally bothers me a little bit about the my own field, mental health um, in general, but also a lot of what I my experience of kind of the addiction and recovery community is that there seems to be a there's a an overly strong emphasis on eliminating the negative, right? So getting rid of bad habits or addictions, but there, there, in a lot of cases anyway, there seems to be a noticeable absence of talk and discussion and, and real kind of facilitation of, but then what? Like, what do you do after that, right? And I think this is where it's, it's not about, you know, it seems to me recovery is not so much about squashing your desire for drugs or alcohol or, or whatever it is, for instance. It's not about the elimination of desire. It's about finding a new object for that. It's about transforming your desire onto something that is positive and, and productive and sort of life promoting. Um, so, so, and that seems, it seems like that's, that's the narrative arc of your whole story in a way is going from the desire kind of leading to all the, these horrible kind of tragic events in your life to you literally learning how to transform, not get rid of, transform that desire towards something else. What, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but that's my kind of read. Does that, does that make sense for you? Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. And I, I talk a lot, a lot about this in, in, in the articles I write as well. Like I, I don't want to survive after addiction. I want to thrive. Like I really do want to thrive, and, and a way of looking at that as well is, um, I think it's lovely the way the way you put it. Like I, I was spiritually and emotionally dead in addiction, but what I want to do now, I want to do things that make me come alive. Like energy for me is the currency of life. Like I, I, I value energy, having high energy, and you've got to follow your dreams and follow your passion, and you've got to be thriving if you want to have high energy and if you want to really come alive in life. So for me, like. People and, and in addiction, people have put so much work into getting their drug, and and a lot of people in addiction are very clever, they're very analytical as well, and they put so much work into getting that drug. But for, from a biological perspective as well, I don't want to go deep on the neuroscience, but you're basically being rewarded dopamine, 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 dopamine with these drugs all down the years, and then when you get clean, all of a sudden you're in recovery and you get clean, like. The, the, them dopamine receptors are still it's like a dopamine monster is still hungry for more dopamine so just to go into this like balance and trying to get rid of the negatives as you were saying like stop drinking stop doing this go to means means are great but for the connection side of things you do get the, the hit there so means can be very good for that but it's a lot about getting rid of the negatives where i i think it's go towards the positives like look for the positives what's going to make you come alive for me it was um learning spirituality getting a degree exercise really healthy pursuits and these things were making me come alive and they were giving me my fix of dopamine which my brain still badly needed because it was hungry for it was I was feeding so much dopamine all of that time. Now, I know it's more complex than that, but in, in, in a way, that's what's actually happening. And I've had, so I didn't, I didn't only have a successful recovery. I had an amazing recovery. Like, they are the best years of my life. I loved every moment of it. And, and, and I, I'm sure the passion in that is coming across as well because I believe that with every fiber of me being. And it's because I followed my dreams. I followed what I was passionate about and what I loved. And 
the flip side of that, the, something that started jumping into my head just there as well is, I was very lucky that I found something that I loved. But just because somebody else in recovery doesn't find something that, that, that they really love, I, I don't think it should stop them going after things as well. It shouldn't be all about getting rid of the negatives. It should be about looking for the positives and looking to, for the want of a better word, replace their addictions with something else until they can find time to get more balance in their lives. Like there's even in, in, in my experience in addiction circles as well, would be um don't get too caught up in that oh don't watch out for that and watch out for this and, and if you have an addictive personality which i don't really believe in per se but if you have that addictive personality you could get hooked into something negative as well but if you can find something positive and hook into that as an addiction or an obsession for a while i think that's a way to go like until you can uh until you can find a bit of balance I love it. Brian, this has been awesome. We're, we're almost out of time, but I cannot let you go before having you tell us the Dr. Doolittle story. Can you tell us the Dr. Doolittle story? <laughs> I thought I got away with it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was crazy. That was crazy. So basically when I was in detox and I had me, me, me perspective shift and I was reading all of these books about um, sages and a presence, intense presence. And it, there was, there was a, some of the books I was reading this way, animals are naturally, and kids naturally have this presence that the, 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 the tinker isn't there, that they, they just intensely present. And there's this like life force energy that the world feels. And when you're out of sync with that, you don't, we don't feel it like adults, most adults are sort of tormented with our minds. And because my mind went quiet and I was reading all these books, it's, it's sort of like this flicker of a, of a thought came into my mind and I started thinking to myself well maybe I'm one of these sages like these Buddhist monk sages and like I should be go to Tibet and maybe this is the start of my journey and I remember like I got so engrossed into this like I, was, I had a perspective shift but I was still a bit crazy because I was an addict for so long so I uh, I remember at one stage I, there was this lovely little stream down at the end. It's very embarrassing telling. I I like telling embarrassing stories, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there was this little stream down at down the end of the farm, and I walked down to the stream, and I says, "I'll close my eyes for ten minutes and start to meditate there." And I there was sort of it was it was a little farm, so there was a lot of animals all around. But when when I opened my eyes, I fully believed that there was going to be like all animals around me, and I was going to be like intensely connected had this presence with animals and I opened my eyes and I was standing there on my own surprisingly enough and um yeah I, I found out that I wasn't Dr. Doolittle that I meet me sage dreams <laughs> died right there <laughs> that's great <laughs> crazy crazy oh. you gotta laugh though that's that's an important point that we didn't get on today you can't take even addiction is a serious game but in recovery you've got to laugh don't take yourself too seriously I think the playfulness is another core value of mine you got to have a laugh. Mm, I love it. Well, Brian, thank you so much. I mean, I mean, not just for, thank you for coming on the podcast. I, I think I, I've just, I mean, I always love talking to you, but this has been really uh, fun, but also I, I hope pretty informative for people, but, but also, I mean, thank you for writing the book. I mean, there, it is brutal. I mean, it, yes, there, there are times when it's embarrassing, but the, the vulnerability and courage to, to write a book like that, that it, that is just so transparent and honest is it. I mean, it's, it's just so admirable, I think. And, and, I, I really believe this this book is going to help a lot of people because the, you can read all you want about sort of the science of addiction and the all the tips and tricks, but I think the really back to our old theme of, of stories, the, the the really powerful element of this is when you hear you know when you hear a story like this, this kind of very human story, warts and all, 
I just think can be be transformative. So anyway, I I I just very much appreciate you putting this out into the world and kind of not just uh, not just surviving, but but using your your story to to thrive yourself and and hopefully to help other people thrive as well. So thank you. Um, and then where you know before we sign off, is there a good place people can go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, definitely. But just, just I'm getting goosebumps. I really appreciate you saying that, there, and again, for 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 reading the book and uh, delighted you enjoyed it. So thanks so much for that. But um, yeah. So if, if anyone wants to read any of my work, my website is the place to go. So if you if you want to get by the book, you can go to my website. There's a book section there. So my website is www.brianpenny.com, P-E-N-N-I-E. And I'm on I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, all the platforms there as well. But if you go to that website, you'll find everything there. All the videos, tools, tactics, programs I've developed around the, the, the program I developed to navigate my own life and that I work with my clients and corporate speaking gigs as well. All right, Brian. Thanks so much. This was amazing, Nick. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.